Hello and welcome to True Alignment. I'm Edgar Papke. And I'm Ken Sagendorf. Good morning. We're live in the Innovation Incubator in the Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. How are you doing today, Edgar? I'm doing okay. I'm always just uh, listening intently to uh, hear if you do it the same way every time around. Do I? I think you do. I think it's pretty It's pretty good. Right? I mean, those, those uh, broadcasters of lore. Yeah. They, yeah. Had, they had those things down. And then I get to say yes, and welcome to True Alignment, where we talk about all things alignment. All of them. And then, and, yeah, and a personal, from a personal perspective and all of our relationships and our families, our communities, and of course, uh, the great predictor of success of business, alignment. Yeah. A human art form. It is. It is. Come always back to the basics that it's, uh, as Ken likes to remind us, it's human to human, and it's, uh, it's all about... It's all about innovating and creating to respond to our human needs, and what it is that we that we want in our lives and what motivates us. That's business. Yeah, liberally yeah. stolen from you. Uh, if you have any questions um, that you'd like us to answer on the podcast, info at truealignment.com. Uh, we welcome all, all questions uh, across all the continents that we have downloads on. Yes, we're continental. Con- inter. <laughs> Intercontinental. Intercontinental. <laughs> hotels. <laughs> Plug. <laughs> Plug. I will seek sponsorship Great later. hotels, too. Yeah. yeah. Nice, nice. Yeah. The, uh, today, uh, it's, it's Monday, the 7th of November. It's my wife's birthday today, so happy birthday to her. Um, we are uh, very fortunate to have a guest on the podcast today, uh, Miss Cody Teets. And Miss Cody Teets currently is the interim president of Regis University, so we're so lucky to have the president of our university. Good morning, Cody. Good morning, Ken and Edgar. Thanks, to, thanks for inviting me. Uh, yeah, we're so happy. We know you had some uh, presidential business we had scheduled earlier, but we had to cancel because being president is hard. It's uh, a lot of flexibility needed. <laughs> I, I'm not sure that's how people think of as what the president has to do of an organization, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as any president, you are at the service of the customer, which in our case is the students, as well as to your employees, which is here, faculty and staff. And of course, also the community as things come up. So while I do a pretty good job of uh, managing my calendar overall, there's always something that can throw you for a loop and need to get stuck in there and uh, move others around. I, I- I was just going to say, well, one of the things that we often talk about is uh, the uh, level of influence that the behavior of the CEO, the president of an organization has on the behaviors of others in role modeling and reinforcing, right? Mm-hmm. So here comes the whole idea of agility. And you know, if, the, if the leader is rigid, then the organization winds up responding in rigid fashion. That's just kind of the way it works. And one of the keys to success is, yeah, being flexible, being flexible and Knowing yourself and the choices that you're making. I I took a class on, um, what would I say the words there, on productivity and efficiency. And one of the things that was called out very clearly is that you must have a growth mindset, not a fixed mindset. And that's, uh, when I think about a growth mindset, that is all about uh, resilience and agility uh, to meet the changing needs, whatever they are. If you think of the world today, you know, it's really hard to stay in a fixed mindset. Yeah, I, I think that's why leadership is so complicated right this second uh, in all aspects is people want you to have a kind of concrete direction and yet you need that flexibility to make it human. 
Yeah, I think about when I'm an affiliate professor teaching uh, strategy in the MBA level, it's all about creating a strategy and then your execution plan. But even though you create that three to five year strategy, you have to be nimble enough to zig and zag because things will change in that three to five year period that you can't just say this way is the only way or this road is the best road because we defined it that way. You have to be willing to ebb and flow as things around you change, especially uh, the talent pool and their demands as well as the competition and they're putting a new or additional pressure. So it's, it's really important to be nimble. Yeah, so many stakeholders in an organization. For sure. So, Cody, we're going we're gonna to slow roll out your introduction a, a little bit today. So, you know, we introduced you as the interim president, but um, I, I want to get into your background a little bit. One of the things that Edgar and I look for when we have guests on the podcast is uh, CEOs or authors. And, and today we are privileged enough to have both in one guest. <laughs> yeah. That's true. That so, is true. So we're g- we'll get into the into the book you wrote, uh, Golden Opportunities, here in a little bit. Good. But um, you know, I love I love to be in the space where where Cody is in because uh, I think her story is so so cool. I think um, you were a McDonald's executive mm-hmm. uh, before you retired and came and joined our board of trustees and and became our interim president of our university. Yes. But you have, you have that movie-esque story, right? You have the American dream story where you went to work for an organization and, and worked in that organization for your career. Um, not common much anymore. Not so much anymore. I mean, the generations that we are educating now at the undergraduate level know of so, no such paths any longer. Right. Right? I mean, they are... Um, uh, but that is, that's the kind of American dream story. So tell us a little bit about uh, the McDonald's Corporation. Tell us about, bring us back to Cody's youth and, and that first job. Okay, thanks, Ken. Um, <laughs> so, you know, my story It was is, only a couple years ago, just so we're Yeah, so, so a few years ago. Um, my story is really a common story in McDonald's, though I don't believe that the media and... Um, I'm going to even say folks in higher ed or, uh, what would I say, publications, they believe that, right? They believe that McDonald's is a dead-end job, or if you end up working at McDonald's, you're just going to flip burgers the rest of your life, all the things we've heard in the past. But um, I started working at McDonald's when I was 16. It was really my second job. I worked when I was 14 at a competitor across the street from the McDonald's I started at, and it was Der Wiener Schnitzel. And I started working at 14 because financially I had to. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up, and... Uh, So as a result, I really thought I would never be able to go to college. So I started working to save money to go to college. And I was fortunate enough, though, to get the Pell Grant my first two years. And then, unfortunately, I worked too much my sophomore, my junior and senior year that I lost my Pell Grant. So I started working 30 to 40 hours a week. I I actually know that story firsthand. Yes. And so I started working 30 to 40 hours a week my junior year, and then it knocked me out of Pell Grant uh, eligibility. So I ended up paying for my last two years of school and took out a student loan from actually my senior year. But when I was working at McDonald's and I went to college at CU in Boulder to get my degree in marketing, 
I was so out of there. <laughs> I'm like, this is just a job to get me through school, and then I'm going to go uh, work in an advertising agency. That was my thought. As I started going to school, I realized um, in talking to a lot of folks that if I had another degree in addition to marketing, um, that I would actually do better, a longer-term progression anyway, if I had some uh, knowledge and skill sets in accounting. So I got a double major in marketing and accounting. And I have to say that... Uh, it really is true that knowing the financial backbone of an organization really makes a person a key influencer in what's going on and a key communicator on how to change the trajectory of any organization. But um, once I got out of college with my degree, I started applying for jobs, and I found out that McDonald's would pay me more to be an assistant manager than I would have started in um, advertising, which is what I really wanted to do. I didn't want to be an accountant sitting behind a desk all day. That just wasn't me. So I decided to continue to climb the McDonald's ladder and went from assistant manager to manager to area supervisor, all with a franchisee, Bob Charles. And he's a famous McDonald's person as he's the developer of the Happy Meal and the double drive through So he was the innovator of both of those. Uh, so I felt very blessed to work with somebody so innovative at an early age. And he was also a big believer if you had an idea, well, you should try it. And if it doesn't work after 30 days, we can always stop. But you should at least try it. So he, he had a lot of um, flexibility, if you will, or empowerment for his employees. And then I went to work for McDonald's Corporation, and it was then that I decided that it was a pretty good gig, and I wanted to become a market CEO. And so I worked through several positions to get to that level, but um, I ended up running um, a market that was $2 billion in size after having spent a couple interim positions, one in uh, California and one in Washington, because it was really important to McDonald's leadership that you would be relocatable before you got one of those uh, senior officer jobs. So I did um, the market CEO for about 10 years while my kids were in school, and then I took a job at McDonald's corporate to be the vice president of franchise relations, which really meant that I worked with about 1,800 franchisees across the U.S. business owning 14,000 restaurants. And I had a uh, influential role uh, with franchise leadership as well as the U.S., uh, I guess C-suite, you'd say. And so it was a very fun job in that I got to learn a lot about the, the challenges that diverse individuals have in equality and equity and being able to buy restaurants, as well as influencing um, top management on our development plan, which eventually brought uh, the restaurants to the current state they're in today with the kiosks, the lobby remodels, the improved drive throughs as well as the fresh beef initiative. So I felt that McDonald's, while people say, you know, it's just a burger flipper place, it's really, you learn a whole business. I learned marketing, I learned talent, I learned HR, I learned, uh, I built over 150 McDonald's restaurants, so I learned real estate and construction, and um, of course finance and marketing. So I found it to be a great uh, great situation for me because I really was able to run a market. I was in charge of the money for my 800 restaurants over five states. And by the time I left, we'd had three consecutive years in the top third of the country for growth with uh, one year being number one and one year being number two. So it was really exciting and uh, definitely was not a dead-end job. <laughs> when you look back on that trajectory, uh, is there a, a thread that shows up as here's the great challenge that I was continuously um, needing to, to deal with, to confront? 
What do you mean by challenge? In the business or personally? Oh, well, yes. now to me, yeah, yes. Yes, you know <laughs> yes and yes. Yes. <laughs> um, well, well, I think the challenge uh-huh. in business is just like any business, right? Um, you are always having to influence others, oftentimes people who are at a higher position than you who may or may not want to listen. And um, the other thing is I think always it's a talent challenge because in order to be a great company, to run a great restaurant or to run a great market, you have to have outstanding talent. And uh, it's always heartbreaking to lose people because they weren't happy there and yet you see the potential they have and what they could deliver in the organization. So um, I always felt like talent was the funnest thing to do and provided the greatest satisfaction to develop leaders and you could see people accomplish their goals. Uh, and then it was also sometimes the saddest moments because people you didn't want to leave would leave. Personally, um, I would say there wasn't, that the challenge was that I always wanted to better myself, and so I was always looking for the next gig, and sometimes people were like, why aren't you just happy where you are? Why aren't you just patient? And I always wanted to create something great and then move on to something even greater and create change there. So I was not the person who could just sit in one role for 20 years. I wanted to contribute in a bigger and better way and um, help develop leaders along the way with me. So two things as I'm listening to come to mind. The first one is just to reinforce the idea that the, the great challenges and the threads and and really places of success came out of uh, influence, which is building great relationships. And the other one, of course, is talent, making sure you got the right talent. So, so uh, as I as I listen to that part of it, that then evokes another question for me. Um, and that is that um, uh, yes, if you're always looking for something greater uh, and you look ar- and you look at the people around you, did you f- find anything within the culture of McDonald's that you were kind of hitting up against because to me um so often we come across cultures that enjoy great great levels of predictability in terms of results and uh and norms of of, of performance that then tie to the norms in the organization which then speak to stability reliability uh a, a continuity in how things are done and then here you are coming into that what I would perceive to be the culture and system, and you're kind of like, yeah, let's let's keep pushing this, and yeah, thanks for that challenge. I'm ready for the next one. People around you saying, you know, you can really kind of settle in here. This is a nice place where you can kind of build your career around a really steady, you know, mode of operating. So, how did that how did that kind of feel for you? Or, yeah, your 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 ability to move within that system and within that culture to get what you wanted. So I worked under five different CEOs at McDonald's, so I would say it was really a different company under each CEO. Oh, that's interesting. And, um, and, and a lot of it was driven by their background. So if, if it was a CEO who had a marketing background, we were a very marketing-focused business. If it was a CEO who had a financial background, we were a very financial-oriented business. And you know that meant some of the processes and protocols that maybe a previous pre- um, CEO had created they didn't change all the way because I think part of McDonald's success is their um, operational uh, procedures and processes, and they didn't make it easy to change them. It was just more about the discussion, uh, I'll say. If I'm a marketing 
driven CEO, it was all about bringing in more guests to make more cash flow. If I'm a finance CEO, it's all about saving money to make more cash flow. And so it was really different businesses. Now, what I always liked about McDonald's is as long as you did a good job, there was always a place to go. I mean, so many of the operations people who um, became market CEOs, which is really an operation job, might have started in marketing or they might have started in finance. Or one of my greatest um, pleasures was I had somebody who worked for me in admin and I helped her get a communications role with the Ronald McDonald House Children's Charities because I always would ask people when they work for me, so, you know, what do you want to be doing in three years and how can I help you? And that's what also enabled me. I developed more officers for McDonald's Corporation than anyone had in a 10-year period, and that was because I was very focused on what do you want and how do I help you get there? That also made it very easy for me to have what I would call the tough love conversations and say, hey, I know you want this job, say, as my market CFO, but you're not always nice to people. And so let's talk (laughs) about how you can deliver a tough message in a soft way because you, you need to help influence the progress, not just say no to everything, right? So, um, I really enjoyed that, but I always had bosses who were the sky's the limit. Now, I will tell you when my last job, which was the VP of Franchise Relations, I knew that I had only a couple of positions that would be above it. I was in the top 100 of all you all officers in the global business. So you're already in the top 100. Where How far up can you go? And it became obvious that I was not going to make it to the zone president role, which is what I really wanted at the time. And they were also reducing, you know, they were getting rid of all their hierarchy and flattening the organization, so there was going to be less positions. So there was a reorganization, and they got rid of the job I had as VP of Franchise Relations. And they did offer me a couple other jobs, but I felt like, yeah, you know, I couldn't move at that point. My son was a sophomore in high school, and so I just decided to take retirement, and I left, and I... In that five years since I've been gone from McDonald's, let's see, I've been an affiliate faculty member, I've been a consultant, I've taken a bunch of courses. Uh, You know, I know in higher ed, a PhD is really important, and I do not have a PhD. I got my MBA here, as you both know, but I chose, instead of going and getting a PhD, I took other classes that I thought were important in business, such as I took two public speaking courses, I took a class on efficiency that I was telling you about, I took a class on business insights, and then I'm forgetting, oh, social media, you know, as, as marketing has changed so much, and that was my background, I knew nothing about social media, and I'm like, I need to learn it. So um, I can actually set up a whole social media uh, communications plan. Yeah, exactly. And, and think sometimes, why don't we do that here? <laughs> you know, I, I, know, I know, Ken, you've got, you've got some, uh, some uh, questions. Uh, uh, and so there's one, one additional question that I just want to pose at this moment, which is that, you know, those experiences of having the multiple CEOs, mm-hmm. you said, well, that really creates a transition in how the company actually works and where its focus is. So now here you are in this very unique moment in higher ed, and you're taking you take over as interim president of a university. There's a lot of a lot of uh, um, stress and tension in the system of education and of itself, let alone in higher ed. And you come into this and looking for what may be the right answers or the right approaches to it. How much does that uh, experience of working with the five different CEOs? How much does that inform you in how you're consciously leading now? Well, first I'd say um, 
Like in anything, you take the good with the bad. You, you, you watched other people before you and you say, okay, that didn't work, or I'm not going to do that, or other people who did really well. So I think they become a part of your natural leadership style, what you're going to do and not do. So I had um, that opportunity, but I also had, uh, you know, a long career, 10 years as a market CEO and uh, four and a half years as a market COO. You learn a lot of things and you you build your own credibility and your own strengths, if you will. So I had all that coming in. And uh, I also had the school of hard knocks that taught me what not to do, right? But so when I come here, what I always found was the funnest at McDonald's, and even with consulting with other companies in the interim, is it's it's the most fun and most challenging, but most um, satisfying to be in a transition role during a transition in the industry. So right now with the changing higher ed industry, to me it's a great job to be part of sitting at the table and also to not necessarily have all the knowledge that higher ed has because I don't limit myself to thinking the way that higher ed thinks. I think more of, you know, yes, we're a private university, yes, we're a not-for-profit, but at the end of the day, we're still a business who has to cover our operating expenses. And so I, I just look at it, the students are our customers, so the only way we're going to be able to have more money to do more things for our students is to bring in more students and make sure that, as our um, customers, that they're happy here, that they're safe here, that we provide the programming that they want, that we make it easy for them to get in and get out and make it easy for them to choose to stay. So... Um, you know, I, I, to me, it's kind of simplistic in a way, but I've never heard of a business that has less customers and does well long term. So that's really where I've always focused my sights is take care of the customer and they will take care of you. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go way back. Yeah, great questions, Edgar. I'm going to go way back to the comment you made about what was the, what was the franchisee that you worked for early on that uh, was responsible for the double drive through and the Happy Meal? Bob Charles. Bob Charles. So you, you talked about Bob Charles, and you bring in this conversation, Cody, about innovation inside of an organization that is publicly known for consistency, right? I mean, and so those two things seem like a little bit of contrast, contrast to me. So, um, you know, I want to I pick up on that thread that the customer experience is perhaps different than the organizational operations experience. Okay. Right. One is always one is always intentionally cared for. So is the other, but it's not often seen by the public. Right. So talk to me a little bit about the, you know, the excitement, the feeling behind showing the customer around the globe. By the way, around the globe. Right. I mean, that is uh, McDonald's is is is. Um, is the exemplar of global consistency. Correct. And so when you talk about innovation, those two se- those two things seem to go against one another, innovation and consistency. Yeah, so I think it's changed over the years how they've done it, but in in the old days when Ray Kroc first uh, developed McDonald's, there wasn't a whole lot of consistency. His whole thing was, you know, buy this McDonald's and do this. And it was very consistent about the food. Let me say that. They was very consistent about the food, but not so much as, hey, I want to build a bigger road sign. Okay, try it. Go try to build a bigger road sign. You want to add a drive through Okay, let's see. Nobody's ever done it. But if you figure it out and it's a good idea, then we'll probably take it. Um, some of the menu items were delivered. The Big Mac was uh, 
developed by the Delgatti fa- family. And again, Ray Kroc said, you want to try it? Try it. Filet of fish was developed by a franchisee. So very innovative in the beginning. As McDonald's uh, went through its uh, history, though, it became stagnant for a while. And it was more like, you're going to do this because I told you so. You're going to do this because this is how we've always done it, which never works. We all know that. Uh, But as new leadership came in, and I think it was really when Mike Roberts became the president of McDonald's USA, where he put a really big focus on what does the customer want? We haven't been listening to the customer. So we tried a few things over the years that didn't work. And so they did a lot of focus groups. And it was like, you know, we need to go into more ethnic tastes. We need to have better speaker systems in our drive through So when you started listening to the customer, you, they want made-to-order food. They don't want it to be in the old days. You guys might not remember it was held in a bin. Yeah. And so, um, you know, for a while it was like, you know, well, who was at Burger King always used to say, we'll make it your way because, you know, it's a slam against McDonald's because you won't. <laughs> and... Um, but that was really the time I was becoming an officer. I was a director under Mike Roberts. And his whole thing was, we have to innovate or die. And, and they used a lot of examples like Howard Johnson's The Hotel, mm-hmm. um, Sears, if you will, uh, Montgomery Wards. And there's a couple auto dealers, I can't remember. But the whole point was they stopped listening to their customers, so therefore they could not evolve. And I found that very uh, refreshing, especially when I became the market CEO here in Colorado, because what I learned is in a couple of our states in particular, being uh, Nevada and Arizona, we were not listening to the Hispanic consumer at all. And so our Hispanic sales were always trailing the Hispanic market in Arizona, and our competition was kicking our butt, and our market share was declining. So once we changed that, where we started doing... um, Spanish language television and radio. We started putting uh, billboards up that were in Spanish when we started putting uh, Spanish or bilingual or both English and Spanish points of sales in the restaurants. That's what led the region, my region, to start making extreme strides and results is because we were giving the customers what they wanted. Um, And at the same time, we were always able to test things. And I was a big believer of, you know, let's test something. You have to give it enough runway for it to succeed because stuff always starts out slower than you'd like. But um, creating a test letter and, you know, my one of my groups, they wanted to serve chicken McNuggets for breakfast. And in, in, again, in Arizona, because there was a lot of construction workers and they started at four in the morning. And so I'm like, okay, let's, let's do a six-month test, right? We already have nuggets. We just have to turn on that on earlier in the morning. But it really turned around breakfast sales in the small towns of Arizona because they were ordering a lot of 20-piece nuggets for breakfast. I mean, you know, they just wanted bulk as they started their days. And so, you know, it's just, um, I would say it's 95% consistent, but there's some things that are different. And then globally, it's even less consistent because, you know, in, in Hawaii right now, even though that's still part of the U.S., they serve spam for breakfast because, and it's the number one meat preference in Hawaii. Just imagine if they didn't let them serve spam there. And in some countries, we don't even serve beef because they don't eat beef. So, you know, um, and I know when I went to Singapore, they have rice. So they, they meet the needs of the customer, but they're, they've learned, maybe I should say, that they have to listen to the customer to know what they need and evolve and can't stay so consistent that they become obsolete. So every business in, in, in our experience, and I know specifically in my own, uh, every business never spends enough time talking to their customer. Just when you think you've heard enough, you should go back and listen more. Correct. Um, over and over and over again. So Cody, 
McDonald's is in your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I didn't know the part about the, I had, I had to work. Oh, okay. And I, and I appreciate that because that's me too, right? I mean, I remember uh, being in college and actually professors, grad school specifically, because when you signed a graduate assistantship letter, it says you will not work anywhere else for this grand, grand total of $9,000 we're going to give you when I was uh, in school. And so you couldn't pay rent or, you know, or buy a car. You couldn't do any, you couldn't live. Um, right. and, and that was what was expected. But, um, you know, I put, I put myself through school and just this last week I was talking with a colleague and uh, I just had to do performance reviews for my department. And, and one of the things that I know I am terrible at, my kids will tell you firsthand, like I am terrible at the praise and celebration. Like that is just not my strength. And I have to work really, really hard to try and do that because I always, my impression is we can always get better. And, and one of my, one of, one of the folks, one of my colleagues and, and longtime friends, he said, you know, Ken, those of us that know you, we understand this because you, you fought, you had to fight early on. So you're looking, you're looking actively for how things can get better. And I wonder if you share a little bit of that with me, this idea, because I love the marketing and the accounting. So I can see two different stories of the same organization mm-hmm. that coincide um, to tell a larger tale. And, and I think so many people are not privileged enough to see that much. And then with that background that you can, you can, you desire to push it to the next level. If you can see all those parts of the story coming together for an organization and you want to push it forward, I can see how, how people struggle in that, in an organization of having a leader that's like that. Um, why? Because it's more right brain, left brain at the same time, or I mean, <laughs> well, yeah, I think I, for one reason, I think a lot of people don't have enough of the story of the organization they work for. Mm-hmm. Like they can't see a, a, the same size picture. So I think that that is definitively one part of it. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, your five CEOs at, at McDonald's, I think a lot of people tell the financial story, but not the market or the customer story. Right. Um, do all three well. And, and, and you have to do all three well, right? I mean, because that, that has how you get to the more total of, total of the story. Edgar and I work with these companies and we've watched them grow, but it's taken some time because in, in the success, Edgar, jump in here. So the success is they start to bring more people into seeing that story mm-hmm. and the connections uh, betwixt and between for those pieces of the organization. Yeah, and it's much like I think the <coughs> mental model that you provided. The, the question becomes how do you integrate the different ways of thinking, left, right, or just from a basic fundamental standpoint of how the organization is is structured and the foundations of functionality that exist and how people can see across all those different um, aspects of it and, and be able to bring that together. And yeah, the more that there's alignment work going on in the organization, the more people get integrated and feel like they're part of and understand that they can contribute. Well, in the so, model of, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. I say the model of pushing yourself too, Cody, of going and continuing to find out and learn new things. Um, you know, even post-career, the idea <coughs> of what, what more can I learn? I, there's one particular conversation you and I've had in the past, um, you know, based on your experience at McDonald's is that, and, and, what you were trying to do before you're in the role you're in now and maybe continuing to do, but that is to help, help franchisees understand what franchising is about. And and one of the conversations you and I've had uh, about that role is that people often believe if I can meet the, 
the revenue threshold, I can buy a franchise and I can go. And, and you've always said, there's way more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Like we need to know that you have enough financial resilience if something happens that doesn't go just so in order for this to do it. So you really believe that the success of a franchisee is set up from the very, very beginnings by having a, a distinct set of conversations. Yeah, so I would just say um, the pushing to do more. I've also told a lot of people I am way too driven. I mean, I wish I wasn't sometime because it's like uh, my husband says, you're the energizer bunny. You're either a thousand miles an hour or asleep. <laughs> There's really <laughs> the no in between, switch, right? Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm always thinking, you know, what could I do more? Uh, and really to just to create good in the world. I mean, it, I took a class. Oh, actually, I spent two years after I left McDonald's and I hired a purpose coach because I knew I technically didn't have to work anymore, but I don't trust the stock market. So I wanted to work. I'm also too young with too much energy. Um, so in this purpose coach I met, um, you know, it was about everything in your whole life. And I figured out that my passion is at the, my purpose is at the intersection of education, diversity, and wealth generation, which really, when I think about um, being here, that's everything in education. It's about, you know, education, diverse education, and creating wealth for the future, which is also part of the why I think that we're, reason we're having challenges with the ROI on education and students, especially today, and their parents saying, is that really a good use of our money to spend, you know, between, I'm going to say, if you're going to Metro, 60000 for a four-year degree, or if you're coming here, 160000 right? So, um, th- there has to be the return on that investment, but where I think it all starts is defining who you are, and this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna say in this case of Regis in particular, we haven't really decided who we are. So we have 780 faculty and staff messages of who we are. We have 5,800 student stories of who we are because we haven't told everybody who we are and we haven't aligned on who we are. So I think that's the first thing that you have to do uh, to be successful anywhere. And then the second thing is um, more importantly than even the strategic plan is the execution plan. And you know, so many companies have a great strategic plan. Regis has had a great strategic plan in the past, but we didn't execute. And even as I look back at years that I, in my own career, have done well, it's, it's because I executed against the plan we created. And I got a lot of involvement in creating the plan, so it wasn't just my plan. It was everybody's plan, and therefore they wanted to see that come to fruition. And then it's all about alignment and communication. So, um, you know, it, that all takes effort, though. And a lot of times people are like, I don't want to work that hard. And so this goes back to, you know, having the right people on the bus. I'm a big believer in uh, the Good to Great book, and I'm a big believer in developing a plan. But most importantly, I'm a big believer in performance management for talent. Because what happens is if there is no performance management, the great people will become mediocre. Because why work hard? Nobody recognizes me anyway. Nobody says thanks. Nobody gives me a raise. So now you've just created a mediocre talent bench instead of we have talent management so the great people are recognized and get more money. It doesn't have to always be a ton of money. They might even get dinner for their spouse for a $50 gift card, but something that recognizes that you notice that they're great. The mediocre people will rise because they see the top performers being recognized. And the low performers, it's a conversation of, you know, do you want to be here? If you don't want to be here, how can I help you get to where you want to be? 
And, you know, usually by the bottom performers, you know, I would say the people who might even be quiet quitting in any organization right now, once they see that the bar has been raised and people are achieving it, they'll either self-select out because they're like, I'm not going to do that, or they'll start getting better as well. So you take that level of mediocrity to greatness. And that's really the most important thing you can do around execution and strategy for success. And so I would say that that's, you know, I think about Regis as we're developing our strategic framework to ultimately have a strategic plan. It's really not going to deliver its best results until we move into a performance management system along with it. You mentioned, go ahead. I was just going, out of curiosity, how's the conversation going in terms of the definition of, of who we are as you pose that question to the, to the organization, the institution? So here's what I would say. I haven't really, I've asked that question. I started a lot of my board presentations with we are Regis, but who are we, right? Right. And um, my suggestion, though, to a new president is going to be in, as part of fiscal year 2024, that we spend some money and we hire a brand brand, uh, professional to help us define our brand because it's going to take thousands of questions to thousands of people to find out who we are and then let somebody who's an expert in that space create that storyline for us and then usually they can create two or three storylines and then we can decide how we use them because how we show up to our graduate students is likely very different than how we show up to our traditional students is highly different than how we show up to our hispanic students right so it takes multiple ways to tell the story um and, you know, in our mission, which is our greatest attribute, I think so many people here define our mission differently, even as well. So is my definition of mission the same as yours? Is the same of a Hispanic student who grew up in a um, Spanish-speaking family who went to Spanish mass every week, you know? So I think you really have to have, um, it's worth the time, energy, and effort to pay a, a great uh, company to help define that for Regis. And then uh, if that happens at the, be- the middle of next year, or the beginning of the fiscal year, I believe by January of 2024, you will have a, a great brand message that can be leveraged throughout the university and across the United States. You mentioned, yeah, you, that's a great answer. You mentioned the Good to Great book. And um, Cody, that's also, I think, f- your philosophy is that there is this, there is this change in growth. It's not static. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, in my experience, especially my higher ed experience, I think so many people are busily protecting something they knew the organization to be once. And, and when you talk about change, that can easily be heard as a, as a statement that the past wasn't good enough, A, mm-hmm. or that um, what's broken I mean, the number of conversations I go into that people will say just flat out, I don't know what the problem is, so what am I trying to solve? Which is them often asking to remain the same. Um, I mean, that's just interesting because when I think about what's broken, I would think we'd all answer that different. But if you, like in the strategic framework information that came out, right, we're going to answer it different. But just knowing those answers will help us create solutions. Um, I would find it hard to believe that people would say nothing's broken. And and I just say that being here a short 10 months when you're like, well, people haven't had raises in years. We've had declining enrollment for years. Um, 
We haven't been able to invest back in technology to meet the needs of today's students. All of that's broken. Now, I'm not saying it's only broken here. It's probably broken in other areas as well. So it's not, it's just because it's becoming harder and harder. And with less students, no one will be successful. So as I've been here, right or wrong, right, it's, I'm taking a look at, okay, so if a student is our customer and is our revenue source, because that's what we provide, a great education, then what does the student want? What does the online student want? What does the adult student want? What does the traditional student want? What does the graduate student want? And we have to ask all of those questions because our customers are so different. And then we have to try to deliver on all those experiences if we choose to, because we might say, I'm not saying we would here at Regis, we might say we want to get rid of the online programs. And if we made that choice, then we no longer need to figure out how to meet the needs of the online student. But that would be short-sighted on our part. But it's really important, you know, it's just like uh, when I was at McDonald's, we said we had to address the female customer, the black customer, the Hispanic customer, the Asian customer. We had a, um, we needed to create some type of globe, global advertising for the Olympics because we were talking to all the customers across the globe, not just the U.S. customer. And so to do all of that is very difficult, and that's why most places hone in on just a couple areas so that they only have to do well in a couple areas. But um, yeah, I think that the answers would be different in creating the plan to, to, to create solutions would be there. However, I think, um, you know, as the industry is changing in this industry in particular, and knowing there's the enrollment cliff because there's going to be less high school students, for any higher ed organization to stay in business, it's going to require a greater focus on the adult learner as well as grad students, as well as um, providing bilingual classes for Hispanic students. So if we're not looking at some of those options, then, you know, it's going to be a harder road for us. Part of that marketing lens is seeing people. And you talked about this in your own leadership perspective, that, you know, whether it was your your, your admin that you were asking and, and promoting them to go on to something else, or even those uh, as you... As you um, as you divided kind of the performance in an organization, those lower performers saying, hey, do you want to be here? But every one of those sections of the organization's, regardless of performance, you talked about seeing them, right? I mean, and and Edgar, jump in here. What do you mean by seeing them? You talked about paying acute attention to them in the organization. Oh. Mm -hmm. Right? And and I think that that is, um, I mean, kudos, because that is such a, a phenomenal leadership trait. To, to be able to see the people in your organization and know where they want to go and know how they contribute. I mean, every everything that Harvard's ever written on leadership, it that is in there, right? Um, so I, I want to mention here quick, you had this book kind of Golden Opportunities, which I think at, at its heart is probably about that, right? It's about seeing people inside the organization and how they can grow inside of an organization. But it's both organizational and personal simultaneously. Yeah, I mean, I think if you can, the sweet spot is if you can find out what the person wants and you already know what they're passionate about because if you can capitalize on their passion and the area of the business that they like and if they're not there now, help create a path for them to get there, they win and the organization wins because they're in a better position that's better suited to their skill set, right? Kind of like that book, Playing to Your Strengths. And so um, 
But you don't know that if you don't sit down and have the discussion. Now, I can't say I've done it with every employee. You know, when I used to work at McDonald's, my employee base was 90. Um, but I did do it with all my direct reports. And the same thing here at Regis. I don't talk to all 780 of us. Um, I talk to the cabinet, though. And I talk to the, as you know, we've created this next level called the leadership group. Because if you think about creating greatness in an organization, that leadership group is going to be your future cabinet. So you need to start developing them and and teaching them in a way to ask different critical thinking questions beyond just their own sandbox because that's where they live every day and teach them the whole organizational perspective by bringing them together. Um, So it's another way of doing people development, but it's also for leaders. I think it's a great way for the leader to hear what's really going on that so oftentimes is filtered for them. There's some real th- uh, threads that are emerging in, in, this, in this dialogue here that I think are worthwhile capturing. One is uh, when you talk about branding. I'm going to go back to that for a moment and creating a storyline. And then I'm looking for threads of alignment in, in, in the story. And the, it comes to life in we need to understand what the student success looks like and develop student success strategies around that, which requires talking to the customer, the student. And being able to align that internally so that not only are we listening externally, we, we listen internally. And this whole idea then of what does performance look like and to take it from a place. And I made the note that you could good, when you define what great is and your pursuit of great, and once you begin achieving it, you can actually get stuck in the great. And then your great becomes your good. And yeah. so th- that continuum of always trying to challenge uh, challenge whatever that definition is. And so that distinct thread of, well, we have to internalize that and align internally to what the student expectation is as well and what we expect of the student and we, as we create success for them. So I think that in of itself is a, is a really good piece to just be able to grab onto to say there's those aspects of, of alignment that occur that are so, so important that we have to not just see one, look in one direction or another but continuously look in all the directions, much like your experience in McDonald's, looking mm-hmm. in all the different directions, even like, you, as you mentioned, um, uh, when it came time to marketing around the Olympics, of seeing it from a global perspective. I think there's just uh, some, wonderful, some wonderful ways to think in what you shared. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, and I think, um, and this is, you know, in my consulting, and I must say that I've consulted to several um, small businesses, and then I've done some consulting to large businesses, more from a franchisee, franchise, or relationship standpoint. Because uh, you know, without being able to say the companies, because you know, you sign an NDA. But um, if they were having franchise franchisees were like raising up havoc, then how do how could I help them ask questions to to balance that out to get the franchisees what they needed as well as the the corporate franchisor. But even in small business I see it the same way that they have a plan and they don't execute it either. So, you know, it, it's not just Regis, it's not just a small business or big business. Even at McDonald's we had, you know, we got sideways on our plans. But uh the success comes, and even as I was one of 28 market CEOs and being able to stay in the top third of the country, that's because I had a plan and I executed my plan. And previously, I can, I'll tell you, I had a really bad year one year, and I was like afraid I was going to lose my job. And it, and it was what I realized is I was trying to meet the needs of national and what they thought was good for the customer nationally without meeting the needs of my customers in my market. And once I made that shift to... 
I have a lot of Hispanic consumers in my market. I need to market differently. I need to have products that they want than we, you know, soared. And, and, and it is hard. The change part is hard because, you know, if it's not broke, why fix it? And how we define broke might be different. So, Cody, uh, you know, what a great point that most organizations are not homogeneous. Um, you know, I think that would be a, a struggle here. I mean, I mean, you mentioned, you know, our online and, and graduate uh, adult students, our, our traditional undergraduate students are, you know, we are, we will be becoming a Hispanic serving institution. So, you know, we're, we're serving different kinds of students. So, you know, a one size fits all doesn't work, doesn't work when you have different customers. It does not. I mean, some things, you know, you could probably say 50% can be the same because that's your brand and that's your um, character, if you will. That's the culture. But then you have to allow the other 50% to be what's best for them. So in this case, you know, if Rickard Hartman needs to do something different than Anderson, then that should be allowed because they're teach they're you know they're creating doctors and nurses and Anderson's creating business people, and the needs are going to be different. Now there's probably some base skills, right? We all have base skills that we need, and that that comes out the most in an undergraduate program. Um, but yeah, it, without that flexibility and too much homo- homogeneity, it, it just isn't going to make you great. Yes, It'll so make you average. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. wrapping around that common thread that goes through all of it. I mean, McDonald's is a common thread, mm-hmm. the experience yeah. and what people expect and the consistency, et cetera. That's the, at its heart, who are we question, the answer to that. Yeah, that goes back to that, which I want to come back to. Um, we have a few minutes, and so I wanted to come back to a couple of things that you said that I think would be great for people to hear from you. Um, and that is uh, you talked a lot about uh, your own experiences, and what you learned through through your career and the application of that, and the need for strategy is great, but you got to be able to execute it against uh, you know against it. And then um, your own uh, two years of working with a purpose coach and getting clear mm-hmm. on your purpose. So the question I have for you, and I, I, uh, my intention is to to um, out of curiosity, and I think it'd be worthwhile looking at, is um, what what's your desired legacy uh, that. And how well are you executing against that? Um, so I'm gonna. I'm, I have a great purpose coach, and I'm gonna put a plug in for him. His name is Mike Valentine, mm-hmm. and what he talks about in purpose is in our life's purpose is something we rarely do well. Think about all the plans we make in business to be great. Think about all the plans I make for my family to have great children. Think about the plans I make to go on a wonderful vacation. Now think about the plans we make for our life. And we don't. I mean, we don't really sit down. And so his process is you create a 10-year plan and um, with one-year milestones. And so, and then you create actionable items you'll do against your plan. So, so I would tell you that my desired legacy is to help. Um, I'm the possibility that others will live their best lives. Okay, so how I choose to show up is helping everybody who's around me to live their best life, which means... I have to talk to them and find out what that best life is. But a lot of times what that's become for me is I'm a connector of relationships. So if I knew you wanted to do something, then I would make the introductions. You know, you say you want to be a rocket scientist. Well, I would do everything I could to put you in touch with rocket scientists who could help you fulfill your vision. And then and then as part of your plan is my plan says I'm going to talk to, I'm going to make a difference in 10 people's lives every year for the next 10 years. 
So I keep track of that. I keep track of the 10 people's lives I impacted in this year. And then I have a plan for next year. And sometimes I might only truly have a plan for five because, you know, some of it's family and I know they could do some help somewhere. And then the other five just happen. And you're like, wow, I could really help this person. So I'm going to do that. But that's where I really see um, the purpose part of it coming in. And I hadn't, you know, thought of it. It's like more like, um, I'll tell you when I was first became a I'll tell you, when I first became a store manager at McDonald's, I I created a five-year goals, and I put five items in my five-year goals, and I hung it on my wall in my bedroom, and in four years, I accomplished all those goals just by looking at them every day and them staying top of mind, and it wasn't even sometimes the effort of accomplishing them, but in my brain, I was accomplishing them, so you're working toward it all the time, so when you think about success, you created your own execution plan against your strategy. And I think as humans, until I met this purpose coach, Mike, I don't know that, I I think I did it in steps, but now I fully have, I'm um, in year three of my 10-year plan, and uh, everything's actually, it's happened. I mean, I'll tell you, one is I said I wanted to be a a president or a CEO, so look, I'm here. I mean, it's an interim (laughs) role, right? But I'm here, and I was just like, and then, you know, I'll I'll tell you what I'm working on. I think I might have told you this, Ken, even, I want to do a TED Talk. Okay, well, now I'm working on doing a TED Talk. And you're like, and I got introduced to the CEO of TEDx. And you're like, how did that all happen, right? And so now will I actually do one or not? I don't know. But I put it in my 10-year plan, and things are coming to fruition as part of my plan. And so the legacy is helping others to succeed. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the title of today's podcast um, Cody Teets purpose and execution with that colon there in the middle, as we often use. Um, so Cody, you, you're a successful MBA alum. You're on our board of trustees. You're helping kind of high level strategic conversations around the organization. Um, you get asked to be the interim president of the university. Um, flat out, I'm going to put you on the spot. What are the biggest surprises? What surprises you most about jumping into that role? Um, so I will say the, the biggest surprise is that, um, I, I'm going to say what I've said to folks, I don't know that we teach people to be leaders. We teach them a subject. We teach them how to be really great at a couple things, but we don't teach them how to be great overall. And, and what I mean by that is uh, this is where I think we just could lean into our mission, right? And we could say, okay, so now that we've taught you accounting, let's teach you how to lead in accounting. Now that we've taught you nursing, let's teach you how to lead in nursing. And that's where I think we really live up to our, our potential of um, go out and set the world on fire. And I know, you know, we've, we've heard, we've received some great accolades, especially when you look at the 20-year ROI on education at Regis, right? We have a lot of people who are alums who are make great money. And I think that's partly because of our Jesuit values that get intertwined into all the coursework and our desire to do more and be bigger than we actually are as an individual, to show up in a bigger way for others. I, I honestly also believe, though, as we think about the changing in higher ed, we could do more to help people become great board members. We could do training in, do- in board education. We could do more training on leadership. We could do more training on public speaking. We can do more training on how do you really assess and hold account- talent accountable. 
and then ultimately do more experiential learning in all these things. So I know when we just redid the strategy class, we built in the um, simulation. And the simulation has been helpful to talk about, okay, not only did I do what I did, but here's the outcomes. And now as I look back, what would I have done differently or what will I do different next time? So it's not just I read about accounting or supply chain or how much I pay my employees. It's I, I made these decisions and this is how it impact, impacted my outcomes and results. So um, I would say that's the biggest thing. The second uh, thing is that uh, there wasn't as much, and I'm not saying this for every university, but there just wasn't as much collaboration as I guess I'm used to and as much as I think is necessary for success. A lot of working in silos, which might make that one department great or that college great, but it doesn't make the university great. It's I'm thinking about my department, my college, my people, not my Regis University. And, and that switch to thinking about the whole will bring greater results than everybody staying myopic in their own world. I just make a note, uh, the choice of uh, the language to train leaders, to train, use the word train several times. And then I think to myself, most people would associate teaching with the university, not training. And then I think in my own mind, the, dif the differentiation that I always go to is that training is about the experiential element. Training is about practicing. It's about learning through practice, through direct application, where so often what happens in teaching, it's, it's more of an absorption as opposed to an application. In great teaching, yes, there's an application. But the idea of just uh, that your, your, your choice, I don't know if it was conscious or not, or perhaps it's just the corporate background coming through, the training aspect of it, which I think is such an important element that's so often missed in, in education. You know, that experiential and the application, the directness of the idea that we get to practice, and that also then ties in uh, listening to you talk about trying things. You know, you, you keep trying things. Keep trying it. Give yourself some runway. Try new things. And I think sometimes what happens in, quote-unquote, higher ed is that there isn't enough of trying there's not enough of the exploration that perhaps is so vital to the development of leaders and of people as a whole. Well, I like what you said, teaching is absorption, right? So, And that's kind of how I look at it. You know, I, I, I memorize for a test. I memorize for a test. I read a book. I have to answer some questions. So I absorbed it for the minute, maybe. I absorbed it for the semester, maybe. But did I really learn it? And so that's where I think the training is about the practice and the learning and application uh, I know that happens in many of our courses, but to me that's a big uh, point of differentiation because when you pay for, so again, I didn't get my PhD, but when I pay for the classes I paid for, I can do the task that I learned and I can apply it immediately, right? We hope. I mean, that's, that's, well, I mean, yeah. like I can, that's I, the best outcome. Yeah, in the ones I've taken, I, I say I can apply it immediately, right? So it's just... It's just a small nuance, and I know I've been told not to use the word training here. People feel like they're already trained. They don't need to be trained anymore. I'm a big believer of um, lifelong learning, and I always need to learn, and I always need to be trained, but um, I've kind of been said that's not a higher ed thing to be trained. <laughs> but it, it's a real-world thing, if you ask me. Well, yeah, that's why it's called potty. Oh, never mind. The, uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, there's such insularity in higher ed, Cody. I mean, this is the, uh, you know, the one one of the many things I just love about Edgar is all of these different backgrounds that he brings to bear on seeing the larger picture when we work with organizations and, we, and when we work with leaders. 
and, and you know, it is Edgar's background as a chef, um, right? I mean, there's all these things that show up. A friend of mine, Sarah Beth Burke. <laughs> insurance underwriting. <laughs> insurance underwriting. Go figure that one. But no, I mean, the stories that come out of that experience, they, they come forward into how you show up with these other things. I, I mean, and I think... Um, Listen, I've been in higher ed for a long time. I started this innovation center to break business education and rebuild it. Right. Um, which is, you know, doesn't gain me, uh, doesn't gain me a lot of friends right off the bat when I say those words out loud. But I, I truly believe that, you know, everything needs a little bit of a reconsideration. So um, it doesn't matter if I have a PhD. I always say that that's my fault alone that I spent that much time in school and I have the student debt to, to, to prove it. But it is, not, um, it is not something I use as a hammer to somebody else of be like me. Edgar, you and I have talked about apprenticeship for a, lo- you know, a lot on the podcast. But education isn't about apprenticeship either, right? Apprenticeship is kind of the passive passing on, um, right? You watch and you repeat what somebody else does and then you learn on your own kind of model in an apprenticeship uh, situation. This idea of training versus education, higher ed gets caught in words a lot when we talk about the difference in the words we use, whether it's training or education. Um, At the end of the day, the student experience is often taking tests. I am the father of two college-age kids, and, (laughs) and they, you know, they, they don't listen to my podcast, so I'll say this. You know, I'm disappointed in them because there are, they are conditioned as students that the important thing are the grades on that test. As their dad, and as an educator for a long, long time, I want them to realize that the tests don't matter as much as whether you can use that information to the benefit of the world, right? Um, Cody, you and I, I, I mean, I remember the astonishment on your face when I said uh, in a meeting we were in together, you can teach somebody how to read a P&L in an hour. <laughs> and you said, no, you can't. And I said, hold on, you can teach them what it says. You can't teach them to make decisions from it in that hour, right? That, that's a practice thing. Um, but you can teach them what, it, what the columns say and what the rows say. Um, yeah, we're so, we're so insular, this idea of the disruption in our space is just really, it's uber present right now. And, and it's funny, we all feel this kind of uber disruption, but the reality is nobody's really disrupted anything. There's these small tweaks. You mean in higher ed? Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's... You know, Regis was a pioneer 30 years ago when we went online. Um, we weren't good enough business people to maintain some of that property and really benefit from it uh, in the long haul. Even though our DNA is out there at the front end of many other institutions that are uh, very financially successful right now. But um, online isn't a disruption. It's just a different delivery point. But what's so exciting about this time is Regis can innovate in an, in, a, in an industry that needs innovation, right? So it's more like you have permission to do it. You just have to decide what is that disruption we want to create. And that's why I like, you know, being in an organization and thinking about all the possibilities because you, you know, you, you heard me talk my example about the butterflies in the jar. The, we keep everybody in a, in a model, a business model that we believe has worked, okay? And, and it has worked. And it's, uh, if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm so appreciative of my time in higher ed. 
but that world is changing. So you have to let some of those butterflies go seek the next way to do it yeah. um, and innovate and disrupt so that you can. And I, I firmly believe Regis can lead in bigger and better ways because the industry is changing and we have the permission to do it. And I also think creating business cases around what we want will bring the donors we need. And we just haven't done that as well. I mean, you and I, uh, or maybe it was some of the other folks from Anderson, but we were talking about the hybrid learning, right, or, and the optionality. And, and I think it's Harvard that's created a 360 classroom, right? Yeah. Well, we could do that. We just need the money to do that. But if you could create the plan and the business case, we could find donors for that. Yeah. But it, we have to have the foresight, and then we have to create the plan, and then we have to be willing to go sell the plan. And um, we, w- we could find donors for that, yeah. for sure. Amy, we're sitting here in the Gronowski Innovation Incubator. Thank right. you, Jamie. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, seriously, I mean, thank you to Jamie. I mean, but this was, this was merely an idea of bringing design thinking in the, in the meta constructs of design thinking to bear on this business education and this university education. And it was nothing but an architect's rendering uh, until we sold it to Jamie. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think about so many things that we want to do at the university. And the other thing, too, is I think we... We could do more with outreach to potential donors. We, we seem to go to the same wells often, and I say that just knowing it now being here. But I, I think it's because we haven't really created the business cases in the past. We are hopeful somebody will hear what we're doing and provide money instead of really going out, you know, we, we're going to build the brewery here, right? And so the brewery's build out of the brewery is actually the least expensive part of the whole thing. Um, but with the brewery, now we can get accreditation in the, in the brewing program. We can create an internship in brewing. We can create a scholarship in brewing. And now once we create that business case, which they're working on in the advancement right now, we can go sell that, whether we sell it to one master brewer or whether we bring four or five brewer, brewers in to uh, co-collaborate on it. But we'll have a package of what to sell versus, gosh, I wish somebody would help us build a brewery. Uh, well, it's funny because, you know, running this well, innovation center. I just want center. to point out to you, when you talking, start talking about brewing, all of a sudden Jim became very, very animated. Yeah, the younger group, right? <laughs> I don't even really drink anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, you're, you're, uh, because you're joining your, your wife who's pregnant? Yeah. Yeah. Wise How man. How nice of you. Yes. yes. <laughs> Wise man. <laughs> yeah, we, ha- we, have to, we have to wrap up on time. Um, yeah, we have to wrap up on time. Yep. Because we could keep. Yeah, this is a great conversation. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I, thank you for joining us. Uh, just really some great stuff here to think about and, and reflect on. Yeah, really good. Thank you. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's all, to me, it's exciting, like I said, and it's exciting to have big ideas because that's the only way they get done. That's the fun thing about a president, Cody, that um, it's visible that you come to work excited about possibility. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for that. So yeah. how, do we, how do we reimagine or disrupt higher ed? That's oh it. my no, goodness, that's, yeah, that, that, that's a that's bigger question, question than me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I have some ideas, but I probably shouldn't say <laughs> until. <laughs> Actually, that's probably what my TEDx topic would be. That's the, is how do we disrupt higher ed, or how do we, uh, how do we make the cost of education deliver a stronger ROI? Yeah, I do have some thoughts on that. Well, there's, you know, we have such a nonprofit perspective, and and you know, Cody, you mentioned kind of the. We, we come from this place of scarcity, like, um, you know, we had Father Shariko here in the first alumni matrix, and, you know, he talked about, 
you know, uh, resources are not pie. We don't divide it up differently. We can make more. But, um, you know, in higher ed, we often have a scarcity model in place. You mentioned that competition internally. And we have a nonprofit perspective. Like, I could do this if you give me resources. Mm-hmm. And so we don't do it if we don't get the resources. So you talk about growing out those plans. Um, we're perhaps stopped at the first point of execution because we're worried about doing anything unless somebody gives us something additional. Well, the interesting thing about the brewing program, though, is when um, Heidi Blair was the interim um, dean at Regis College, she's the one who brought it to me, and she said, hey, you know, um, I want you to meet, and I'm, I'm forgetting the gentleman's name who's the, in charge of the brewing program. So, and I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Why don't you write me a business case? Why don't you show me? Well, once she started putting pen to pa- paper, it becomes easier to Vision. find that donor because, uh, you know, too often here we say we can't do it because we can't afford it. Well, let's create the way to afford it. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that perspective that you bring to us. Yeah, let's figure it out. All right, it's a puzzle. Puzzle to be solved. And for anyone in business, resource, financial resources always, yeah, and quite often one of the greatest challenges. But that's what makes work fun. I mean, you think about if if there's a problem and I can be part of the solution and you respect my input, that's what makes coming to work fun. Yeah. Again, that's back to that being seen. Mm -hmm. Well, Cody, thank you for everything uh, that you've done here for us at Regis um, and continue to do for us at Regis. And thank you for being on the podcast today. You bet. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really had fun with you all today. As, as we did with you. Thanks very much. Thank and, you. Uh, so for True Alignment, keep in mind, if you want to reach out to us, info at truealignment.com. Let us hear from you with all your thoughts, comments, questions, as we like to say, anything at all. So this is Edgar Papke. And I'm Ken Sagendorf. Have a great day, everybody. Live aligned. I love that.